Good morning, Grace Presbyterian. Good to be with you. It's great to be with you. This day is like Chamber of Commerce for the Hamptons, right? Phenomenal. I called my wife this morning. I, I got my six hours of sleep, which is not bad for me. Uh, so I was, I was out and walking around this morning. I said, honey, this is fantastic. She said, I wish I could have been here with you. My wife's name is Fran. She was here with me a couple of years ago. We came together. Uh, just a little bit about her. We've been married for 33 years um, this summer, and uh, we have been blessed to have four children together, and two of those are now married, so we feel like we have six kids now, and we have two grandchildren who are the delights of our lives. Uh, and, uh, but we met at a Christian event like this, a worship service that was a big gathering for a whole week in Kansas City, Missouri, the week after Christmas in 1983, and we sat down next to each other out of 18,000 college students together. I was on the end of a row of guys, and she came walking up with a couple of friends from Auburn, and, and she was this beautiful redheaded girl, and she said, can we sit next to y'all? And I said, sure, absolutely. And so I had the good seat on the end of the row, and we sat together. We prayed together in a little prayer group. I said, why don't you come to lunch with my friends and I, and so we went to Wendy's down the street, the redheaded restaurant. So, redheaded girl, redheaded restaurant. I know you don't think so, but I've got pictures to prove it. I, I was very redheaded. I had hair and it was red, okay? And so we're standing at line in Wendy's. We've known each other for an hour and a half. And she said to me, hey, Paul, if we got married, we'd have all redheaded kids. And we did, and we do, so... <laughs> We did and we do. The, the grandkids have broken the curse so far. They are not redheaded. Um, but uh, she would make fun of me because I, would, I will say to you now, this story we're going to read is my favorite story in the Bible. And she would, she would nudge Mark here and say, that's what he always says. Whatever he's preaching on is his favorite story in the Bible. This really is my favorite story in the Bible because it's a story about giving thanks to Jesus for all that he is for us. And it's entering into a life of gratitude to God, which is our whole purpose. You know, our fathers in our part of the church, the Westminster Divines, said hundreds of years ago, what's the chief purpose of humankind? What's man's chief end, right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our whole purpose is to enjoy and celebrate the wonders of God in Christ. So this is a story about how we can enter into that kind of life. I don't know what your practice is here, but would you stand with me as we read this text? This is Luke 17, printed in your bulletin, verses 11 through 19. Hear God's word to you. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, 
giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to be like the one who came back, who saw, who moved, who laid himself out with full body and loud voice to give thanks to you for all that you were to him, for being in your being, Jesus, in your person, the very salvation and life of God. Lord, may we be like the one and not like the nine. But Jesus, we confess freely, we are very often like the nine. We don't see what you've done for us. We don't remember. We don't come back. And when we do, our praises and thanks are faint-hearted and half-hearted and weak. So Lord, come to us today. Encourage us today. Uh, freshen our lives the way the wind is freshening, this breeze is freshening the air around us. Come, Holy Spirit, and bless us with the thankful hearts of Jesus, who has been our life and blessing. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise here as we're getting going, just really briefly. If you like the right Write it on the corner of your bulletin if you want to put it on the notes page of your phone or if you just want to do it mentally. I'm going to give you an assignment and we're going to take about 30 seconds on this assignment. And here it is. What is the biggest barrier to you and your spiritual life? What is the top barrier for you in knowing God and in walking with God? I just want you to take 30 seconds and think about that. Spouses, you're not allowed to ask if they don't want to share. It's just very personal. Parents, you can't pry it out of your children. A few more moments. Okay? We'll stop. If I asked you to share... I wonder if any of us would have written on our little edge of our bulletin or our note page or mentally that thanklessness or lack of gratitude is my biggest problem. We might put, it's this addiction, it's this habit, it's this bitterness, it's this challenge, it's this lack of faith, it's this doubt, it's this besetting problem, it's this loneliness. But I wonder how many of us would have written thanklessness or a lack of gratitude to God. It's, it's really interesting because the early Christians thought a lot about this. You know, it's constantly in the New Testament writings, right? Paul is constantly saying as he writes to a church, he almost embeds a line like this somewhere in there in almost all of his letters. Pray to God about everything and be thankful in all things, give thanks. I have learned, Paul says personally, in all kinds of times and places, in all kinds of situations, to be thankful 
to God. For this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. It's a big deal, right, for the apostles. They're thinking along these lines that thanklessness is going to be an issue. That being grateful is hard. Think about the whole flow of the Old Testament scriptures. What are the Psalms constantly doing? The refrain of the Psalter is over and over again what? Israel Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord. Remember and forget not all the benefits of your God and be thankful. Right? Why? Because it really is hard for so many of us. Whatever you wrote mentally or on your phone or on the edge of your bulletin, underneath that, I would argue, so often is a lack of gratitude to Jesus. And a great curative for whatever that issue is, is growing a thankful heart in Christ. And we'll see this as this text unfolds. You know, the early church, right, coming out of the apostolic years into the first couple of centuries, came up with this list. It's famous, right? The seven deadly sins. The Western church came up with it, right? Of pride and envy, and anger, and greed, and gluttony, and lust, and sloth, those seven deadlies that are like categories for all the sins and struggles we stumble with, all the things that sort of hold us back from following God, right? The eastern side of the church had a similar list, but they added one more. Thanklessness. Lack of gratitude. So it wasn't just the apostles or the psalmist pushing this, the churches that developed and evolved said, this is huge for us. So how, in Jesus' language here, do we live like the one who came back and is full of praise and thanks to God and not like the nine? How do we become grateful, thankful people to God in Christ? How do we become people enjoying God now and forever fulfilling our purpose in life. Let's think about this from Luke's story for us here of Jesus healing the ten men and one coming back to say thanks. Thankfulness starts, right, with eyes that see. A thankful life before Jesus is a life that sees what God has done for us in Christ. Let's go back to our story. What happens? Jesus is going... And he's been sort of at the peak of the period of his glory. He is transfigured on the mountain. You know, Peter and James and John see him there. He talks with Moses and Elisha. They come down from the heavens and they have this conversation about what Jesus is going to do in Jerusalem. And Luke says, Jesus comes down off that mountain and he sets his face like flint, like he is locked in on getting to Jerusalem. So the whole back half of Luke's gospel is to march toward Jerusalem to go there to give his life for the life of the world. And Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and he's passing through this region of Samaria, this this outer edges of the people of God, the part that used to be the northern kingdom when when the kingdoms were divided, this area that is sort of part Jewish and part not and And Samaritans are people who have connectivity, except for they don't want anything to do with the Jewish temple. And and so they are sort of people of God, 
and they're sort of not. They sort of are worshiping the God of the Bible and they're sort of not. They're this very mixed bag of people. And Jesus is passing through this region and he's in Jericho. And, and, and what, what, does he, what does he do here? Is he, is he marching and moving along? In this? He comes to another village and, and he sees these lepers, right? And they're outside and, and, and they cry out to him, Jesus, have mercy on us. Who, who are these lepers? They are people who have some kind of ongoing, horrible medical condition of the day that was utterly uncurable, short of a miracle of God's intervention. If you were a leper, your skin was literally rotting away ongoingly. Your life was literally before your eyes, right, falling apart. Physically, you were living a living death, right? Socially, they're on the outside of this community, right? They're completely outside the village. They can't come in. Why? Because if I come into the village, if I live in community with my spouse, with my children, with my parents, with my friends, if I were still a part of the working community of shepherding or farming or taking part in business trade, uh, I would be spreading this disease. So my life is completely outside of community. The only community I have is with other lepers, with other people who are sort of walking zombies like me, living dead people. So physically, I'm dying. Socially, I'm dying. But most of all, what a leper thought, if I have some connectivity to the people of the Bible and, and this whole narrative of who God is, according to the Hebrew Scriptures, that spiritually, I'm dying. Because leprosy was this mark in Scripture of the idea that somehow I'm cursed by God. Like Moses' sister Miriam, when she speaks against Moses and his authority, speaks against God's choosing of Moses, God strikes her for a period of time with leprosy as a mark of his judgment on her. And then he lifts it, right? In the story that was beautifully read for us about Naaman being healed, what you, if you read on in Kings, you find that the servant of Elisha is greedy and wants the stuff, the silver and the clothes that Naaman wanted to give Elisha, and he goes out and lies to, to Naaman and his, and his servants and takes back from them clothes and silver. And Elisha says, what are you doing? This was not a time for this. This was the time for the free grace of God to be poured out even on God's enemies in bringing healing. What are you doing? And the leprosy that was on Naaman is now on you, Gehazi. You are under God's judgment. One of the greatest kings in Israel's days was Uzziah. He was, he was a faithful, loving, bold leader for the people of Judah. And he decides, I want to be both king and priest. I want to be somebody who's the hero of heroes. I want the story to be about me and not about God. I want to step out of all the boundaries that God has put into my life and so he goes into the temple and he begins to swing a censer of incense 
and God strikes him with leprosy and he lives the rest of his days apart from everybody even though he's king of Judah because he's got this judgment of God on him. So if you're a leper, you think, my life is rotting away physically, I've lost everything I have socially, but most of all, I've got this sense that I am under the curse and judgment of God, ultimately, spiritually. And so they cry out to Jesus for mercy. What does Jesus say to them? It's very short, right? He speaks from this distance back to them, and he says, go show yourselves to the priest. That doesn't mean a lot to us. It was a word of hope to them. It was a word of grace to them. The only reason that you would go show yourself to a priest if you were a leper is because you think, perhaps I've been healed. <laughs> the, the system was, you go to the priest, the priest determines if the leprosy has left your body, there's a period, sort of a holding period, and then you're checked again, and then you can come back and celebrate, have a ritual cleansing among the people in the synagogue or temple. You can rejoice that God has lifted this curse off of you. You can come back into community, and you can enjoy the healing miracle of God in your life. So when Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priest, he's saying, there's hope for you of cleansing. There's hope for you for healing. There's hope for you for freedom from coming out of this judgment of God. And so the men begin to walk. And what do they realize? They see they're cleansed, Luke says. But one of them, right, sees that he is healed. Luke's not only a doctor by trade, he's a brilliant writer, and he's great with wordplay. We might see that word healed there in the text, and it doesn't mean a lot to us, but, but if you're reading it in the original context, he uses a word there in the Greek that is talking about healing holistically, full salvation, utter Renewal. One man sees that he's truly healed physically, socially, spiritually before God. And so he has to give thanks. So if we're going to live this kind of life, if we're going to be like the one and not like the nine, right, it starts with our vision. It starts with our ability to see what has God done for us in Christ? Luke just conflates, right, the whole hope of salvation into this one moment. What is our hope? That one day we're going to have renewed bodies in a fully renewed world to enjoy all of new heavens and new earth. Our hope is that begins now, right? Is that we're brought into a community of people, again, from the outside. Of people like this church... People like the whole body of Christ where there's a greater love that can be enjoyed for an eternity than the best marriage enjoys here now. Why is there no marrying and giving in marriage in new heavens and new earth? Not because God is down on marriage, but because what's 
ahead of us in the fullness of that life is a community that is richer and deeper and fuller and more satisfying than even the best marriage has ever been on earth, right? But ultimately, there is this hope that our sins are forgiven, that Jesus is doing something here to, to, that he's on this road to Jerusalem that is going to take away my sins and the sins of the whole world, that is going to lift the condemnation and the judgment of God off of me. Seeing that, do you see that? It's great to wake up on a day like today. You know, even if you, you, you went through, you know, uh, someone on the music team was talking about, I've been sick all week. My, my five-month-old baby has been sick all week. I slept two hours. I said, well, I got sick, so you had the hard night, you know. You know but it's, it, you, can, you can, we might have had hard nights getting here. Maybe it's been a hard week getting here. But you wake up on a day like today, and you just see the beauties of this creation. And it just fills you with joy and hope and delight. That's the kind of vision that we need all the time with what God has already given us in Christ. Now let me tell you something. Go back to that thought you had. Go back to that word you wrote on the edge of your bulletin or you put in your notes page or you had mentally. What is that besetting issue? What is that barrier for you? See, what I want you to see, first of all, about that is, whatever it is, an addictive pattern, an unwillingness to give up a grudge, what I, whatever it is, a hatred towards somebody in your heart, a lack of faith in a certain way in God, whatever it is, Jesus has already died for that. Jesus has already done work to say there's a real sense in which you are healed of that. You're not experiencing fully yet. You don't have all of new heavens and new earth yet. Luke sort of pressed everything that happens for us now and into eternal future into this one moment with this leper. But, but Jesus has already done work to forgive you for that and to bless you in that space. And you can, even in that brokenness, rejoice. Uh, I want to share a story about a beginning of summer. Uh, this is at the end of summer. A beginning of summer story back when I was a parent of young children, a lot of you, as you, uh, you are. Uh, it, was, it was around my 10th anniversary. Uh, my wife and I now had uh, three children, and I had planned this amazing 10th anniversary trip to take in May, right as school was ending. I got my mom and dad to come stay with our kids to do the end of school stuff. Really smart. You didn't have to do the end of school rush. It was amazing, right? You know, it was, it was awesome. I planned ahead the first time in my life. Problem was my wife got pregnant after I'd made this plan with number four. So I'd pictured this romantic beach vacation. She's seven months pregnant, you know, as we're there. Didn't feel like going out of the beach a whole lot. But it was a great time when we were away. We come back. And my kids are like, Daddy, school's out. We had a great time with Joji and Jimbo, our grandparents. We, we were great summers here, Dad. I said, that's awesome. That's awesome. But I looked at them, and in my father-slash-preacher voice, I said to them, now what about those special projects I gave you? Now why do you give a 7-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old special projects at the end of school? I don't know, but I did. 
What about those special projects? Well, Daddy, we didn't do those, but school is out, and we're here. We had a great time with our grandparents. Summer's here. And I looked at them, and with my preacher voice now, well, next time, I want you to be a better steward on the projects I give you. Why do you say that to a five-year-old steward? But I did. I could still see myself and hear myself in my kitchen in Austin, Texas, saying this. So literally, this is one of a few times this has happened in my life. I finished that. We had our little dinner. My mom and dad were still there. And I walked down the hall to our bedroom. And God spoke to me as though he were right next to me. And said, Paul, what kind of steward have you been? And that began a period of reflection that took me all through that summer. And where the Spirit of God led me in terms of my stewardship before God was, I, I had not been a good steward. And particularly, there were two moments in my life that sort of, they were these, they were these markers like road signs or, or just, you know, obelisks out there that you'd see that were just marking. One was a place that I had failed radically in the church when I was offered a position to head up all of the campus ministry for all of our denominational work throughout the United States. I wanted to take that job so badly and I wanted to serve in that role, but I couldn't because I had publicly humiliated the former person that held that position. And though I'd been forgiven by him and by other leaders, uh, I knew that the reason I had humiliated him publicly and spoken against his ministry was because I coveted his job. And how could I turn around now and take his job when I was part of the undoing? There was no way if I had an ounce of integrity that I could do that. And I thought the best thing that I could ever do to serve the church, I had ruined by my own sin. And then the other marker out there was a couple years earlier, uh, George Bush the Younger was governor of Texas at that time. We were planning this church in downtown Austin. Through a friend of a friend, we got connected. We spent about a half a day together um, around his office in the Capitol there. We talked. He gave me his favorite book on Sam Houston, his favorite character. Paul, I want you to read this. I like you. I'd like you to read this and come back. I'd love for you to hang out with me some. I'd like to just to forge a little relationship. And I took that book home on Sam Houston, and I read it in a couple of weeks, and I never called him back. And by this time, he was already in the process of running for president and was heading toward being president of the United States. And not just that, I, I didn't even swing at the pitch, right? On the most significant thing I could have probably ever done in my life, to have a relationship with a man who would be president of the United States and try to encourage him. He was a beautiful Christian, is a beautiful Christian. But just be a friend to him while he was in Austin. What kind of steward have you been, Paul? Lousy. So the end of the summer, like now, we're doing a family beach trip, and I'm riding with my dad uh, up a couple miles up the coast of South Carolina to go see my uncle who is dying of cancer, and I'm telling my dad on this, you know, hour-long ride up the coast, 
All these things I just told you. The story of what happened in the beginning of summer. The story where God had taken me. And this just utter brokenness I felt about these heavy failures in my life before God. And my dad said to me, but son, isn't that what Jesus died for? Those kinds of sins that we can't go back and fix. And I pulled the car over. I started crying so hard I couldn't drive anymore. He had to take over because I was just overwhelmed. I had eyes that saw, yes, this is what Jesus does. This is the level of the healing and the blessing he gives. So even where you may be feel defeated by writing that little note, away, that's a space in which Jesus is saying, I love you and I've died for you there and I'm at work for you even especially there. Thankfulness comes from eyes that see, right? Secondly, a thankful life before God comes from not just eyes that see, but feet that move. Feet that move. This is where the story gets really interesting to me, right about these men. They're all walking to go see the priest. They're walking in hope. They see that they have been cleansed, and so they are charging forward toward the priest to get that declaration of cleansing, to get that holding pattern started so they can come back into the community, live again with their families, be a part of a workplace again, be a part of a worshiping community, and have this sense that I've been declared clean before God. They're heading there. But right, the one man sees all of that in a way the others don't. He sees, and what does he do? His feet take him somewhere else. His feet take him first back to Jesus to give thanks. In a sense, he's disobeying what the Bible said. The Bible said if you're a leper and you've been healed, the first thing you do is go to the priest. The first thing you do is get the official religious declaration of cleansing. But this man says, no, I've got to do something first that's better. I've got to go back and give thanks to Jesus. My feet have to take me somewhere else first. He's disobeying the scriptures, as it were, and Jesus loves it. That's how much Jesus wants us to prioritize gratitude in our lives. When, when's the last time that you just stopped in your tracks? What do we do when God does something big in our lives? When a prayer is answered, when, when, when a movement of God takes us to a fresh place, when we, we go deeper in a way, when we, we, we see these things, what do we so often do? If you're like me, this is what I do. I stop for a split second while I'm running on to the next problem. Thank you, Jesus. Now I'm on to the next problem. Are you like that? My neighbors, our best friends in Athens, Georgia, where we live, they, had, they were deeply concerned about their 12-year-old daughter having some swollen lymph nodes, and it had been tested and tested. We prayed for them across that space. 
she was going to see a surgeon. It was the last part of the referral process. And I just stood in their yard with the mom, with my wife, Fran, alongside me. And I just said, Elizabeth, let's just pray. Let's just pray. And let's ask Jesus to completely take this away. And she, she goes, I, I don't know if I can do that. Let's just pray for that. This is just this week. And they get to the surgeon. And he goes, you know, I think she's okay. I want to do another scan. They do the other scan on Friday. She gets the results Friday evening. It is completely clear. Praise God. Right? But then Elizabeth is saying to Fran, my wife, over the weekend, I just want to live in that, right? I want to live in that thankfulness. And I'm already moving on to the next worry about whether she's going to get her homework done, right? It's what we do, right? We're just moving on. Yeah, we give a wave. And, and Jesus is saying, the one man comes back and he turns back and he puts before anything else, even coming back into official re religious activity, I'm going to stop and get in front of Jesus and give thanks. Now, the story that was beautifully read from us from Kings, you may, why in the world did he have us read that? Was that Mark just pulling something out of the air? No, it was not. That was me, okay? Why did we read the story, okay? Because Mark might do stuff like that, right? Yeah, no. Why did we read that? Because Luke is wanting to take you back to other things in the Bible. He's even painting a picture for his Jewish readers to think, when you read this story, can you think about another significant healing that happened in Samaria? Can you think about somebody who was an outsider that got healing? Can you think about, yeah, oh yeah, it's Naaman before Elisha, who was a total enemy of God. Whatever your besetting sins are, his were far worse. He was a slaughterer of God's people. He's captain of all the armies of Syria. He's a brutal, oppressive figure. But he comes looking for mercy, and God gives it to him. Even when he's a jerk about what the prophet says to him, God still has mercy on him and heals him. So he goes running back to Elisha. He's like the one man, right? He's trying to get in front of the God's representative. And he says, what can I do to give thanks? Can I give you silver? Can I give you clothing? What can I do? And Elisha says, this is free. This is about the grace of God. Well, then Naaman says this funny thing, right? You're going, what in the world is he making us read this for, right? Well, would you please give me two mule loads of earth from this place to take back to Syria? Because when I go back, I'm going to have to go with my master into the pagan temple and he's going to bow down and lean on my arm and I'm going to have to bow down. Can you give me some space from this place that I can stand on even when I'm doing that that I can in a sense just sprinkle onto the ground into that pagan place so I can be before the one true God of Israel in that space even there that heals and blesses and forgives people like me. We don't have to ask for mule loads of earth. Because Jesus is now the true temple of God. 
And as we draw near to him in his name and his, by his spirit and according to his word, as we'll just feast with him at this table in just a few minutes, we get to stand on that space. See, here's the thing, right? You can get a miracle from God at a distance. You can be a leper and cry out to Jesus from a distance and, and amazing things can happen. But only when you're in front of Jesus, giving him thanks, only when your feet take you to stay in front of Jesus to give him thanks, do you really enjoy what the miracle is about. What does Jesus say to this man? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, the faith that gave you not just eyes to see what I'd done, but feet that brought you back here to me, you're really enjoying the gift that I gave you. You're really entering into the purpose of it. Our salvation, the forgiveness, the healings that begin now and will go into all eternity are for the purpose of getting us in front of Jesus to celebrate our gratitude to him. Where does Jesus want you to prioritize that? To just stop everything else and get in front of him. To live as though you, you had two mule loads of dirt because you're right in front of him and you're on God's space, and just to celebrate and give thanks. Eyes that see, feet that take us to give thanks, and lastly, full bodies, full lives laid out in gratitude. You know, it's it made the joke about, I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't want summer to be over. You know, I, I'm a summer person. I love it. And it's almost like, you know, I'm, I was born in Florida. I'm a Floridian at heart everywhere I've lived. Uh, but, you know, um, I just, uh, I can't even enjoy the first touch of fall in the year as a Floridian because I'm worried about, well, after fall comes winter and we're going to be cold. And it's pitiful, you know, but that's me. I'm just taking you into my neuroses. I'm sorry. You don't need that. You got your own neuroses, right? Okay. But, but uh, I don't even know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. Uh, but, but, you know, what, what we do with those things is um, when we think about fall, right, I think about football. First game back with college football last night. I think about football. And this time of year makes me remember growing up as a kid, I loved football. And I'd watch games, and I'd ask my dad to go out and throw the ball with me in the yard. And he'd throw it, and, and I would run past patterns. And I would say, Dad, don't throw it to me. Throw it way out in front of me so I have to dive for the ball. Because that's real football, right? Catching the ball and sliding on the ground, right? Right? Especially when I grew up in the 60s and 70s with the old grass fields and you know, living in Florida, it was so cool to see when it was snowing, you know, in the winter and mud all over the place and you're just diving for the ball, right? That's real football. Real walking with Jesus is laying your whole life out in thanks to him. It is extravagance in gratitude 
for the extravagant grace he has given us. How does God lay out for us sending his son, sending himself, sending a part of his own being in a way that we can't even comprehend that the Father and the Son are together in one and yet they're separate persons together with the Spirit. We can't even comprehend this. What does Jonathan Edwards, the famous theologian of early American history, say? That the love between the Father and Son is so strong and so deep and so eternal. The Son has always been from the Father. They have always been connected. That all of this connectivity and love is so rich and eternal and deep and wondrous that it has to be a third person even. That the Spirit is the expression of the love between the Father and the Son. This is how God has laid himself out to bring these saving mercies to us. How will we lay ourselves out? What does this one man do? He sees it, his feet take him back there, but then he falls down on his face and with loud voice gives praise and thanks to God. Where, where does God, today as summer's closing, as fall is on its way, where does he want you to be extravagant with your gratitude to him? Where does he want you to dive for the ball, as it were? Where does he, where does he want you to lay it all out? In thankfulness to him. Maybe it's a relationship in which you've always had the moral high ground. Someone has deeply wronged you. And you get to play the victim and that feels good. And Jesus is saying, well, I was the victim for you. So that you don't have to worry about that moral high ground. You can admit your brokenness too. And just go love. Maybe there need to still be boundaries because this person has abused you. But just go start loving them and give up your victim card. And throw yourself out in love before me as you love this person. Maybe it is uh, to say, I know this friend as I'm going back to school um, has nobody. And I don't really like her. And I don't really enjoy her either. But I'm just going to be in her life because Jesus is in my life when I don't deserve anybody to befriend me and to bring me near to God. And I'm just going to go lay out and be this person's friend. Maybe it is I give financially to the work of the kingdom of God, but I only do it in a comfortable way. I'm really going to lay out for that church to get planted, to help it go in a place like Stony Brook. Or Mark's vision is for literally dozens of churches across Long Island. I'm going to come talk to Mark and say, how can I help get behind financially the planting of a church? Because I want to lay myself out for Jesus and how he's laid himself out for me. I'll just close with somebody. I started with talking about my wife. I'll close with talking about my wife. My wife is so fun.
She's so kind. She's so gracious. She has really taught me almost everything I know about being kind and loving to others. But she would laugh at that and say, well, I don't think I'm much that way. And she'd say, for sure I wasn't when I was growing up. Have you seen the movie Mean Girls, right? The old movie, Lindsay Lohan, right? Well, my wife's a redhead like Lindsay Lohan, right? Except for she didn't have the Lindsay Lohan role. She wasn't the girl who was attacked. She was the Rachel McAdams character doing the attacking. She was the mean girl. She was the head of the mean girls in her little school, right? And so this new girl comes. She's pretty. She's smart. She's on the cheerleading team together with Fran and her friends. Fran doesn't like this. She decides, I'm going to make Tammy's life miserable. This is ninth grade. I'm going to make her life miserable, right? Actively pursuing making her life miserable. Have you ever had that happen to one of your kids? I had to one of my daughters later in life. What do you want to do if that happens to your kid? You want to strangle the kid doing that to your kid, right? No, that's not appropriate. You want to strangle the parents of the kid doing that to your kid, right? Friend says, no, 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 Paul, because I was that kid. And you know what Tammy's mom did, Paul? Well, she found out that my dad was chief of staff at a hospital and always gone. I had a brother and sister who were much older and were gone. And my mother was physically, emotionally, psychologically disabled and never got out of bed. And then I was raising myself. And she found out, I'm going to make Fran a lunch because Fran never has a lunch. And our school doesn't serve lunches. And the mom sticks through her daughter who thinks this girl hates me, gets her to dump this lunch off in my wife's locker every day, does it for months without my wife even knowing who was doing it. And then she finds out that my wife's dad is stricken with liver cancer and dies very suddenly. Very suddenly. And she realizes, okay, this girl has nobody now. And she starts getting Tammy to invite Fran over to do homework. Tammy's a great student, Fran not so much. Help her come do homework. Let her eat dinner with us. Soon, let's spend the weekend together. Then, why don't you come, Fran, on her trip to the beach And then when it's time to go to college, Beth, Tammy's mom, and Tammy are riding in Tammy's car to college. And in the second car is Tommy, Tammy's dad, with Fran riding to college, who helped her apply and get in and be Tammy's roommate. All because Beth decided, I have a right to be hateful. But I'm going to be extravagant in gratitude toward Jesus and toward this little girl that needs somebody to love her when nobody will. And it made all the difference in Fran's life, and thus it has made all the difference in mine. And it has a rippling effect, this kind of extravagant thankfulness. This guy's story, right? It's not just about him, right? It touches into us 2,000 years later. It, it has this rippling effect when we are thankful 
to Jesus and give our lives over to gratitude to him. Here's the last point. We go away. Nine didn't come back. They apparently were the insiders. Jesus doesn't say anything about them being foreigners. They're inside the community of Judaism, it would appear. They don't come back, but the one outsider, the Samaritan, the half-breed, the half-God-fearer, half-not, does. The longer we have been in the religious community, the more prone we are to be thankless. May God touch us afresh. May we have an outsider's love for Jesus so that our praise and thanks touches our hearts, gives us a joy of our salvation, and has a rippling effect around us now and across the ages ahead. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time, and we praise you, and we pray that we would be not like the nine, but like the one. Give us this grace, Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.